I've always been someone who has very vivid, almost lucid dreams. They can be very good dreams. My wife will tell you sometimes I will wake up laughing maniacally, just, just laughing. I won't remember quite what I was laughing at usually, but, but I'll be just filled with joy. It's a very real thing. Or I've had very, very horrible dreams. Sometimes even demonic dreams at, at times that have been very, very real, very, very lucid. But the worst dreams that I've ever had have been the dreams I had in, in junior high and high school. And I'm not talking about the ones where you show up at school and your pants are made of jello and everyone's laughing at you. No, these were very realistic. These would be the dreams where I would, I would wake up in the morning and like any teenager think, oh, I don't want to get out of bed. It's so cold out there. It's so warm in here, but I got to. I got to get up. I got to get dressed. I got to brush my teeth. And I would go through all those motions. I'd eat my breakfast. I'd be about ready to, to put on my backpack and walk out the door. And I'd realize I was still in bed. I had dreamed it. And I'm thinking, if I'm going to get a dream, at least can I get a good one? And then I'd have to do all that stuff again. For real. But imagine how good it would feel if you thought you were dreaming. And doing all the stuff you didn't want to do. And then you realize, no, it is real. This is happening. I'm, I, I'm done with all the hard part and I can get going on my day. Well, Peter has a similar situation here. It, something seems just too good to be true. It, it's something that seems like it's just a, a vision, a dream. And suddenly he realizes that it's real. And he has a realization in that moment that God is answering prayers in a bigger way than he dared to think God would. Now, where we find ourselves here in the book of Acts, there's been a while since persecution has really entered into the picture. Even though we think of the book of Acts as being kind of chock full of violence toward the church, it's, it's been a while, right? Because we see in, in uh, the conversion of Paul, kind of the end of one chapter, where the hierarchy of the, the temple and the, the high council of the Jewish faith was putting their energy toward persecuting the church and, and trying even to destroy it in the words of Paul. And there's a, a, a season of peace. Even as people flee persecution, they're setting up churches. More or less, there is little resistance and they're able to kind of get comfortable and the church grows and there's a season of peace. But now, out of the blue, seemingly, there's another wave. This time, not from the religious leaders, but from a political leader who's trying to rekindle the old fear and anger and use it to manipulate his base. Thank God that never happens anymore. But this is Herod. He's just called Herod here because it's trying to tie him back to the other Herods. This is Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, the guy who ordered the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. And we're going we're gonna to learn a lot more about him next time. Don't worry, there's a very colorful story about Herod coming up right after this one. But what you want to know now is that he wants to be Herod the Great, part two. He has inherited a certain amount of power, a tetrarchy, and he's building it back up, trying to get back to the scope of his grandfather's kingdom. And in order to do that, he gets very good at cozying up with the right people. And at this point in history, he's trying to gain support from the temple leadership, the Jewish leadership. And so he begins by laying violent hands upon some who are in the church. Out of nowhere, here comes persecution again. Here comes bloodshed. Here comes violence. And that goes so well, and he focus groups it so successfully that he goes right to the twelve. And he takes James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, and puts him to death with the sword. 
If you'll remember the Gospels, James and John were amongst the first disciples to be called. Are they not? They're they're the ones who are there with their nets, mending the nets. Jesus is just like, hey, follow me. And they do. They leave everything, their father, their business, their nets, their boats, and they follow him. It was James and John who were so fiery, Jesus called them the sons of thunder. Remember, they wanted to call down fire from heaven sometimes because of all their zeal. It was James and John who were like, Mommy, will you ask Jesus if we can sit at the right and left in your kingdom? And Jesus said, Ah, but can you drink the cup I am going to drink? They said, Oh, yeah, yeah. They're thinking a, a gold cup. Right? Remember on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Of course you do. When they're looking at all the cups, which one's the cup of Christ? People keep going to the bejeweled, beautiful cups. And then they say, no, 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 it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be that kind of cup. Jesus came to drink a different cup. He, he, the one that he said, if, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But he drank down the judgment, the wrath of God against sin. It was all upon him. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, oh yeah, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But this thing you ask, it is not mine to give. And it's now happening. This is being fulfilled because James is put to death. He, he drinks the cup after Jesus. And in that way, he's martyred and honors Christ. That gets such a good reaction that Herod thinks, I'm going right to the top now. James, this guy's small potatoes. I'm going for Peter. I could break the church. It was Jesus himself who said, strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And maybe that's sort of what he's thinking. Peter is top dog. He's the rock. Everyone knows that. The church is built on him. He's the spokesman at every turn. He confounded the Sanhedrin when they would drag him in and question him. And so he goes right for Peter. He has him arrested and thrown in prison. Now, the prison is almost certainly the Roman fortress Antonia, the headquarters of the Roman garrison there in Jerusalem. It's an enormous structure, and there's thousands of people stationed there. In fact, many of us who've been there and seen it actually believe that the Western Wall, where people, even Christians, will often go and pray as if God's presence is still in these rocks, that wall is actually part of this fortress, this enormous structure, rather than part of the temple. And so they, they bury him under the jail, as sometimes it is said. And, and you read this, and it almost seems like they're going way over the top. Four companies of four soldiers apiece to watch one fisherman. But that's standard. You've got one four-man crew for each of the four watches during the night, so everyone stays fresh. That's how it worked. No one got away. Okay, So you, you would have two men chained to him, in this case anyway, and two men watching the door. No one's coming in, no one's going out. And it was normal to chain, at least to chain the prisoner's right wrist to the left wrist of a guard. That way, I mean, the assumption was everybody was right-handed, and so the dominant hand of the prisoner was locked up, but the dominant hand of the soldier was free if he needed to, you know, give a little reminder that you are indeed under our control. When there was extra security called for, the prisoner was chained on both sides, right and left, to two soldiers, and that's the case here. Peter was high-profile enough that they thought of him as, uh, I don't know, maybe a supermax prisoner, they, they hadn't forgotten that on a different Passover week, a decade earlier, Peter was the only one in that garden who fought back. Okay, there's, there's some fire in this guy. And so they, they lock him down. 
both of his arms to a different guard. Two other guards watching the door. They secure him. Remember, it's like when Pilate said to the Roman soldiers, make the tomb as secure as you can. You remember how well that worked out? Robert Fawcett wrote this, Ye think your prey secure, bloodthirsty priests, and thou obsequious tyrants who, to please the Jews, hast shut in this most eminent of the servants of Christ within double gates, guarded by double sentinels, while double keepers and double chains seem to defy all rescue. So thought the chief priests who made the sepulcher of our Lord sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. He who sitteth in heaven shall laugh at you. We find here there is nothing the world can do, there's nothing the enemies of the cross can do that God cannot override and undo, that God cannot frustrate. There's no efforts of the world or the enemy that can thwart the plans of God. Now this plan was well laid. He decided to arrest Peter during the week of the festival of the unleavened bread. This is when most Jews are in Jerusalem, and so this little PR stunt He's assuming that everybody shares the view of the the leadership in the temple. He's thinking the most people will learn of what I've done and I'll get the most additional support for my continued growing of my particular purview within the, the Roman world. But he's not planning to have him killed until the end of this week. Remember how when Jesus was crucified, they hurried up and did it before that Sabbath of the Passover because they they were very hesitant to do anything like that during holy days. Well, they've learned the lesson now. Don't do it quick. Don't do a rush job. Make it kind of spread out. There's some anticipation. People are talking about the fact that Herod has arrested this man, Peter. And then they're planning to, quote, bring him out, which means to sentence him once the feast is over. And all the while, during this week of the feast, the people, the Christians, are offering up earnest prayers. Now, it's not often that I say, this is generally how a word is translated in multiple translations of the Bible, but I don't think it's the best word. That's something that maybe Greek scholars should say, not guys like me who've studied it in school and been at it for... 15 to 20 years and and aren't experts. But I'll tell you, when I hear earnest, I think really heartfelt, right? Yeah, I really mean what I'm saying. And maybe I'm just thinking of earnest in the wrong way. But this word, this, this word in the Greek actually can mean eagerly or fervently or constantly. It's a much more charged word, I think, than earnestly. In fact, it probably means all three in this particular case. They were praying eagerly and fervently. In fact, this is the same word that's used in Luke 22 when Jesus is praying in the garden and we're told, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood falling upon the ground. Not that he meant it all the more, but that he became more fervent. His spirit became more agitated and he was, he was praying with fervency and eagerness and constantly even while his disciples were off sleeping they they were praying constantly as well this is what matthew henry says about what was going on they prayed for his release in their assemblies then they went home and prayed for it in their families then retired into their closets and prayed for it there so there is earnest constant fervent urgent prayer 
going on for Peter throughout this entire time when he is awaiting, essentially, his death. He knows what's coming. He knows what happened to James. We have then the night before they're to bring him out. This is, this is the kind of as exciting as the Bible gets. The night before, and Peter is up, right? He's scared. No, he's sleeping. He's dozed off between his two guards. I don't know how you fall asleep while chained to two people, but Peter pulls it off. He's taken off his tunic and is using it as a blanket, which was the normal thing to do, going all the way back to the Bedouin days of these people. And then an angel comes in. Now, we don't know what's going on with the guards because it doesn't tell us. I sort of assume they've nodded off too. If that's the case, that's another miracle. Because they all know you fall asleep while you're guarding someone, you die. And so, I mean, they would have been just espresso, Red Bull, everyone's staying very much awake. And yet, for whatever reason, maybe they were just struck completely still like dead men, like the guard when the angel came down and moved away the stone. And Jesus came out. We don't know, but for whatever reason, they kind of don't factor into the story at all. There's a light that appears, which is fitting. This was the darkest of dark places. No hope, no light, until God brings this glimmer of hope and a light shines in the midst. And the angel wakes him up by striking him on the side. Rude. And says to him, get up, get dressed, we're leaving now. And so Peter obeys. The chains fall off of his wrists. Think about this. He, this, is, this isn't Samson. He doesn't have the, the strength to break the chains and defeat all these guys, but he doesn't have to because his God has the power to do anything. And now we find the humor starting to ebb in. And this is a story that makes us chuckle, and I don't think that's irreverent. I think it's intentional. Peter, as he walks doesn't think this is real. The angel says, follow me, we're leaving. He follows him. In his mind, this is a vision. It's a metaphor for something. Oh, they're going to kill me in the morning and I'll be free, so to speak. I get it. And, and this is not anything new. Psalm 126 begins with the words, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. We didn't even know that this was real. It felt like a dream. It didn't feel... And, and in Peter's defense, he had just had a vision, right? The sheep came down from heaven. All the animals were in it. And so when the angel arrives, he finds him sound asleep. He wakes him up. And, and again, this is important. That he's so, he's so asleep that even the light doesn't awaken him. A little tap on the shoulder apparently wouldn't have. Erin and I were talking about this yesterday, and she says, well, if he's down on the ground or on a bench sleeping and, and the angel strikes him, I picture him kicking him. <laughs> Maybe, who knows? But he wakes him up. He wakes him up from a deep sleep. Peter apparently has been meditating on the words and promises of Christ. Been thinking about, for example, Luke 12, 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. That's the situation here. They can kill his body, and that's it. Then he is he's safe. He's home with his Savior, with his Creator. He's at peace, even if all seems lost. And yet, when he doesn't recognize deliverance when it comes, we recognize that he assumes that all is lost because it seems that all is lost. 
He has hope beyond this life, but he doesn't have the hope that God might turn things around in this life. This is a fairly common thing, I think, especially in churches. I've sat in church council meetings where people will say things definitively. This is what's going to happen. If we stay on this present course, this will be... And I say, hold on, what about God? Oh, no, 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 no. Let's not, let's not assume God's going to do anything. This is a church, after all. He doesn't believe it's really happening, even though, catch this, it's already happened before. In chapter 5, you remember that? He was in prison. An angel came, opened the door, said, head into the temple courts and get to preaching again. And he did it. How quickly we forget what God has done for us. But Peter has decided this is it this time. I'm, I'm done and I'm at peace with it. He's maybe remembering the words of Jesus who said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Of course, we're told by John, he said this to describe the kind of death with which he would glorify God. But when you're old, Peter's like in his mid to late 40s here. A while ago that seemed old, but it doesn't anymore. Peter, you're not old, man. God still has more for you. The same thing, I think, happens in our minds. We go to God in prayer, we forget. We forget what happened. You remember the story of feeding the 5,000? What a, a mind trip that must have been. Five loaves, two fish, everybody's fed. That night, Jesus says, head across the sea, I'll meet you on the other side. In the middle of the sea, there's a storm. Not unlike what we had last night, only scarier, because they're on the sea in a boat. And Jesus starts coming to them. And Jesus calms the storm, and they are all astonished. And the text tells us because they forgot what he had done in the matter of the bread and fish. It's been like 10 hours at most, and yet they'd for we forget so quickly how faithful God has been and don't recognize this prophetic principle, the same God who did this will do the same sort of thing again. He will deliver us. He's faithful. You know, we have been set free. We were locked and chained in darkness like Peter. And God's grace came and shined a light into that darkness. And we saw the chains and understood our situation. And God's grace unchained our hands and gave us a kick and said, Wake up! Wake up! You're sleeping! Stand up! You're free now! Follow me! And still we walk around in a stupor like, Well, is that really reality? I mean, yeah, I understand that, that I'll go to heaven when I die, but am I really free? Am I really unchained now? Do I really have the ability to follow him? Or is this just a vision, just a, a legal fiction? Some questions that come to mind when I read this text. Why did God wait until the last minute to save Peter? He could have done it at any point. First night that he was in that cell, he could have said, all right, I've heard some earnest prayers. Here you go. Why would he wait? Does God just like it to get excited? Is, is God like addicted to drama? No. No, we read in Deuteronomy 32, 36 that this is how God works. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Perhaps Peter still had a little hope in Peter. That's a, that's a basic Simon move, right? Confidence in the flesh, in himself. Maybe that had to ebb away. 
We saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the, the story of the miraculous catch of fish on the, the third appearance of Christ before uh, or after his resurrection that, that he waited until they'd been fishing all night and caught nothing and were despondent. Then he showed up and said, hey, I got a life hack for you. Try the other side of the boat. Our God is called Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides. But when he got that name, when exactly did he provide? Remember, it was a story of when Abraham was told, offer up your son Isaac as a burnt offering to me to show me that you love me more than anything. And he went up, they had the fire, they had the wood, they had the dagger, but they had no sacrifice. And Isaac says, well, where's the sacrifice? And he said, the Lord will provide. And undoubtedly, he was looking around like, okay, Lord, you can provide now. You can provide as he builds the fire. You can provide as he prepares the altar. God waits until Isaac is bound on the altar. The knife is in Abraham's hand and his hand is stretched out before the angel of the Lord says, do not harm the boy. And there's a ram caught in the thicket who becomes a substitute. That'll preach, but I'll have to do it another time. Or perhaps he's just giving the saints more time to pray. Seemingly they didn't have it with James. It happened quickly. This time because of the Passover, what beautiful symbolism there, there is time for them to pray and pray and pray earnestly and fervently and constantly and eagerly. Maybe a more difficult question is, why did God allow James to be put to death but rescue Peter? Why one and not the other? Aren't these the questions we sometimes ask? Why does God make this call and not that one? Why did both of them eventually die for their faith as martyrs, but John lived to old age? Exiled, yes, but still alive. The answer is we don't know why. Luke makes no attempt to explain why. But in this text, I believe we see both the mystery of God's sovereign will and the power of prayer. The fact that prayer makes a difference. These are, these are presented to us as cause and effect. God hears earnest prayers. God, God hears the crying out of his people in Egypt and moves his hands. He remembers his covenant. God wants us to pray. And he's, he's not saying, well, I have a sovereign will, but you pray even though it's useless. No, these things are not at odds. They are both realities. And look at what happens next. Suddenly, the angel leaves him. Peter says, oh, I get it. I'm free. Peter's getting more righteous, but he never gets really sharp. That's something I've noticed about him as I study the scriptures. I see now that God did rescue me from the hand of Herod and what everyone expected to happen. But now he's on his own. And I want to point out something that, that occurs to me as well in this text, that often we go to the opposite extreme. Sometimes we don't expect there might be a miracle. Oh, I'm free? This must be a vision. It can't be. It's too good to be true. God wouldn't do that. But, but then there are those times when we say, Oh, God, I'm just going to depend on you to do a miracle, when in fact we should be working toward that goal by natural means, by ordinary means. Notice that Peter is not told, All right, now I'm going to bring you somewhere and miraculously caught up like Philip had been and deposited at the door of Mary's house. Or better yet, brought right inside so he could avoid the whole crazy shenanigans at the gate, right? No, he, he has to decide where to go, and he brings himself there with his own recently shackled feet. This is, this is something that he can do, so he does it. Just like that boy can say, hey, here's my lunch, but he can't multiply it. God does what we can't do. But God calls us to do what we can as we follow him. 
as we've been born again and, and we've been unshackled, yes, follow me. So, so the angel leaves him. Peter decides where to walk. He goes there himself. And, you know, often I believe we look for miracles when it's the least appropriate thing to look for. And sometimes we don't look for them when it's the only hope that we have. We'll say to God, well, Lord, I know there's this sin I must leave behind, but uh, I think I'm going to keep on leading myself into temptation while I pray, lead me not into temptation. I'm, I'm not really going to put myself to the work of mortifying the flesh. I'm not even going to take seriously that, that injunction that says, make no provision for the flesh. No, no, I'm, I'm going to go about my life normally, but keep praying, Lord, looking for a miracle here. Take this desire right out of me. Whoop, just take it. Make it disappear. The fact that I'm asking you to do it shows my heart's in the right place. No, the fact that I'm not actively working toward that goal shows that my heart is not in the right place. Or we say, Lord, I know I'm called to proclaim the gospel, and I have this coworker or this friend or this family member who, who must hear the gospel because they are lost I pray that you miraculously just cause them to turn on the TV and see Billy Graham or something, or bring someone else into their life, or anything but me doing what I have been commanded to do. There are those who would even neglect their health and say, oh, I probably ought to go to the doctor, but Lord, I'm just, instead I'm going to ask you for a miracle because that's easier. There's a time to trust God for miracles, and there's a time where we pray and ask God to bless the work of our hands and give us wisdom and give us strength to carry on. But he goes to Mary's house, and I think we need a moment here to identify which Mary, because there are Mary's galore in the New Testament. This is Mary, the mother of John Mark. John Mark, by the way, is kind of the one guy who holds together all these different stories in the, in the uh, book of Acts, right? He's the one who, who's common to Peter and Paul. He's the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He's a pretty big deal in the early church, although he's quite young and inexperienced, wet behind the ears at this point. His mother's house is probably the place where they had the Last Supper in that upper room and where they uh, saw the Holy Spirit come down and the tongues of fire at Pentecost. This is a family of means, in fact, we find out that uh, her nephew is Barnabas, right? So John Mark and Barnabas are cousins, and this family of means shares those means with the church. It says this will be used to benefit the whole body, and in that way to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, as we've been called. And, and so he goes to her home. And, and this woman's house was a major hub of ministry and prayer and fellowship and apparently logistics because this is where he goes when he's not quite sure where to go. It's probably close, and it's somewhere he knows he will find believers, people friendly to the cause of Christ and friendly to his predicament. He could have gone anywhere. Take a moment to realize this. He could have gone anywhere, but he goes to the prayer meeting of the women's circle. That might tell us something. I believe... First certain that it was during the last watch of the night, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., that Peter was rescued because they don't discover until the morning that he's gone, right? So if there was a changing of the guard in between when he was rescued and, and 3 a.m., they would have discovered then. So it seems that it's, it's quite late. It's the middle of the night. It's, it's the hours that I've only experienced when I've had crippling insomnia or when we had an infant a long time ago. Other than that, there's a 4 a.m. I did not know that. There are many people gathered together in the wee hours of the morning praying, even at four or five in the morning. 
They're praying. They're praying constantly, remember? They're praying fervently. They're praying eagerly. They're praying earnestly. Jesus had told that parable about the, the annoying woman and the unrighteous judge. You remember that? The widow who, who keeps on coming to the judge asking for justice. And at the very beginning of that, we read, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And they're taking that to heart. And they are praying and praying and praying. We're going to keep praying 4 a.m., 5 a.m. And maybe the reason this one meeting is going through the night and no one's stopping it is because the clock has been ticking, counting down this whole time Peter has been imprisoned. But there are only a few hours left before Peter's certain death. See, this isn't going to be some drawn-out trial where they sequester the jury and, and every morning everyone gathers around the water cooler and says, Ooh, did you hear what happened in the trial? I wonder how it'll turn out. No, not unlike with Jesus, it's going to be accused. Sham court, kangaroo court, then there's going to be a verdict, it's going to be guilty. You know who's already decided that? Herod, and he has the ability to. And then there's going to be a sentence carried out, the sentence of death. By nightfall, Peter would be dead if he's not somehow delivered. And so they are praying and praying, and this is going to be a bit comedic again, but what would you expect in an episode featuring Mary and Rhoda? Am I right? In this case, they're both Jewish. But he comes to the door, the gate, whatever. It seems like perhaps an iron gate, not unlike the one uh, as they're leaving uh, the prison that opens by itself. And he, he knocks and knocks and knocks. And the maiden Rhoda comes out. She can't believe it's Peter. And she's so overcome by joy, she leaves this guy standing at the gate while she runs back inside and announces to everyone, Peter's here. Peter's at the door. And they say, you're nuts. Stop saying crazy things so we can get back to praying for Peter's release. The, the NIV, I think, says, uh, you have lost your mind. The King James says, you are mad. Other uh, translations, you are out of your mind. The Vulgate says, this is insanus. This is the insanest thing I've ever heard, right? That the idea that Peter has been released. I think back to when the women were reporting to the men. Peter and John included. Hey, the, the tomb's empty. Jesus is gone. And we read in Luke 24, but these words seemed like pure nonsense to them, and they did not believe them. That's often chalked up to chauvinism, and maybe there was a little bit of that there. All oh, these women are hysterical. But now we see that women can do the same thing. This is a human thing. The, the report has come from Rhoda that, that Peter, a guy they trust, is there, and they say, oh, it sounds, it's, it's nothing. You, you sound nuts. You sound like you've lost your mind. I think we often fail to expect an answer to prayer even as we pray with all earnestness. Perhaps what they were really praying for or hoping for was just a stay of execution, some technicality, that, that, that for some reason Herod would be in a good mood and after having him flogged and beaten, he'd release him once again as he had been released before after being flogged and beaten. Perhaps just because... Uh, again and again, they prayed and not seen any results. Their hope began to ebb away. And, and as self-protection, they started to say, well, maybe we don't want to hope for anything too big. Maybe we don't want to get our hopes up. Maybe we've, we've lost James. Maybe we want to start coming to terms with the fact that we're going to have to carry on, soldier on without Peter as well. Maybe they've been praying so long that they don't even remember why they're praying. They're just doing it out of obligation. But one thing's for sure, they're not expecting a miraculous answer. There are some time-honored, to put it kindly, sermon illustrations about this sort of thing, right? 
You know the one where there's been a drought in the rural community and they, they go to church and every week they go to church and they pray for rain. One day a family's walking to church and he says, we're going to pray for rain at church. Pray fervently. Make sure that when you're in your children's class they, you pray for rain. She says, will God answer the prayer? Oh, I, I believe He will answer our prayer. And a little girl says, but where's your umbrella? Wah, wah. <laughs> or you remember the other one. This, the, 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 this one that Snopes actually went ahead and, and went out of their way to debunk, even though it's obviously just a, a uh, sermon illustration intended to be kind of metaphorical. It's a, a story of a, a tavern that opens up in a dry town right next to a church. And the church continues to pray that God will, by whatever means necessary, shut down that wicked house of liquor and licentiousness and all this stuff. And one day, lightning strikes the tavern and it burns to the ground. And then the owner of the tavern takes the church to court and says, they're responsible. They should pay for it. And the church says, oh, no, 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 we're not. We didn't do this. And the judge says, well, whatever the, the case, whatever the verdict here, it's obvious one thing. The tavern keeper believes in the power of prayer and the church doesn't. Let us not be the church that doesn't believe in the power of prayer. What does she say? Oh, if you saw somebody or heard somebody, that must be Peter's uh, angel. We, nobody knows what to do with that. Right? I mean, okay, so is this a situation where they think this is a messenger? That word angelos just means messenger. A messenger that Peter sent and was like, make sure you look and sound like me? That doesn't make sense. If it's his, his angel, why would it look and sound like him? Well, there's all sorts of Jewish angelology. We don't know what, what they had been taught as children. No, truly, there's angelology was something that was taught, and, and even they were almost kind of lifted up and, and, and uh, treated like the saints are treated in certain Christian traditions. So maybe there's something we don't quite see here, but what's clear is, is she believes that there are angels. She believes that there's the possibility of something supernatural or miraculous happening. Uh, and, and I don't know that it's entirely off base to think that each of us has a guardian angel. I wouldn't make it a doctrine point. I wouldn't argue over it. I certainly wouldn't break fellowship over it. I'm not 100% sure about it. But I read passages like Matthew 18.10. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. We don't know. But we do know a couple things. First of all, that they missed the point. That, yeah, there are angels involved in this, and that's why Peter is at the door. The angels are here doing God's bidding. And God's bidding is that Peter would be free. We do know from Hebrews 1.14 that angels are all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's you and me. Which means when we pray, even today, not just back in the book of Acts, angels are often part of the answer. You don't see that happening generally, but it's, it's a reality. It's something that we can pray for and trust will be happening. God's angels are ready at any moment to do his bidding in answering our prayers. Now, Rhoda could have quickly settled this disagreement in a moment. How? One second. Come on in. And yet she stays and argues at great length about whether or not Peter is standing outside. All the while, Peter's out there probably doing that like whisper yell thing where you're like, guys, I'm a fugitive out here. Open the door. Let me in. Someone's going to see me. The irony that the iron gate designed to keep him in opens without anyone touching it. But the door of a friend's house remains closed and barred while he pounds on it. This gives a whole new meaning to knock and the door will be opened unto you. 
eventually, right? They've, they've been knocking at the heaven's door, praying for his deliverance, while Peter's knocking at their door, saying, guys, I've been delivered. Learn to take yes for an answer. When he finally gets in, they're astonished, and there's such chaos, everyone's shouting, everyone to the point where Peter wants to tell the story, but he can't. He has to go, ah, silence, right? You raise your, like, like Jesus calming the storm. He raises his hand. He says, guys, I'm on borrowed time. I got to tell you what happened. He relates the entire thing. Why? So that they can share in praising God for what he has done to deliver his people. He recounts this thing. He, we have to assume that even after Peter left, this prayer meeting continued on into the next day. Forget sleep. It's now become a party. It's become a worship service. It's become a, a time of prayer, of thanks and praise and gratitude. But before he leaves, Peter says, I just stopped here and I want you to do me a favor and tell James and the other apostles. James, who is going to be coming to the foreground, is the leader of the Jerusalem church now that Peter is going underground. He goes into witness protection so deep, we don't even know where he went. We're not even told. He, he, he disappears now, and he is safe. And he, he's going to pop back up in chapter 15. But for the moment, God has rest. Just like how God came to, to Joseph in a dream and said, Herod wants you dead. Take the child and your wife and go down to Egypt. And then came back and said, okay, now it's safe to come back. And I think what we see here in this passage, when you boil it all the way down, is the difference between being cocky and being confident, spiritually speaking. Sometimes I hear girls talking these. I want, a, I want a guy who's confident, but not one who's cocky, right? Not one who walks with a swagger, but one who holds himself in a certain way. Well, I think it was spiritually speaking, we are called to be confident. We don't strut, but we walk confidently in the war. In fact, the word confidence comes from the Latin con, with, fidem, faith. We're called to walk with faith, to pray with faith, not with entitlement, not coming to God saying, you owe me a bunch of miracles, I expect you to solve all my problems today, but with faith, trusting that God who hears our prayers is able to do anything, open to any answer we might receive. The text here is often applied this way. You must expect miracles. Don't be like those people, Peter and those women and the apostles who were praying but didn't expect the miracle. I don't know how you get to that application given that everything turned out okay. Right? Don't be like these people. What? You mean having our prayers answered? Listen, they were gathered together and praying. They were doing what they should be doing. We don't want to judge them. We just want to remember as we pray in order to motivate us to pray all the more that our God is powerful enough to send his angels to do miraculous things, to, to take away the chains and open the gates that are shut and locked, to somehow walk past two guards here, two guards there, and however more guards were on the way out. They clearly didn't expect miracles. And Peter was delivered all the same. God answers perfect prayers but there aren't really any perfect prayers. Throughout the scriptures, God answers feeble prayers. Prayers that are mixed in with a little doubt and unbelief. Prayers that are mixed in with a little selfishness. Prayers that come at the wrong time or in the wrong way. God answers our prayers. And we know that Jesus intercedes for us 
at the right hand of the Father, that the Holy Spirit offers up our prayers like incense. We see that picture in Revelation and that our prayers are made acceptable just like we are made acceptable in the face of God, in the presence of God. So I suggest the application is simply pray. Pray earnestly, pray urgently, pray fervently, pray constantly, and yes, trust that God can answer your prayers however he chooses. Pray confidently. Pray with faith. We don't know why it is that Peter was saved and James was not, but we know that when Peter was saved, God had heard the earnest prayers of the saints and decided to move his hand and do something miraculous. When we pray, let's do it with confidence. Let's do it trusting in a God who is the same God who spoke everything into existence, the same God who sent his son to die on a cross, the same God who rescued Peter from certain death is the God who hears our prayers and answers them. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the gift of prayer that you have entrusted us to come to you to offer up not only our thanks and our prayers, our praise, our confessions, but Lord, that we can come to you and ask for what we need today, our daily bread, to ask for deliverance, to ask for help, to ask for wisdom, to ask for strength, to ask for patience. Lord, we're, we're promised if we ask for wisdom, we will receive it. And yet how infrequently we choose to take advantage of that. Lord, I pray that we would be a church where prayer is earnest and constant and fervent and urgent and eager. That, Lord, we cannot go a day without coming to you in prayer multiple times. It would be unheard of and absurd for us to try to. That, Lord, we would be a church where when something is about to happen, when we are awaiting news about uh, someone's health or job or a situation, that, Lord, we would spontaneously gather together and pray. That we would pray well into the night. That, Lord, we'd wake up in the middle of the night with prayers on our lips. We'd wake up in the morning with prayers on our lips. We would go through our, our day lifting to you everything that we encounter, knowing that you are a God who hears our prayers. In your holy name we pray. Amen.